This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Today on the show, I'm interviewing Bobby Martin, the author of a new book called The Hockey Stick Principles. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales, and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Mike Belsito. And I'm Joelle Goldman. Well, the, the Hockey Stick Principles is about four stages of growth for startups. And uh, one thing I found is that, that founders go through these you know, these stages that uh, the implication of those stages, those stages are really quite important. Uh, the first stage is tinkering, which is before you quit your day job, you are messing around with your idea. And through my research and studies, I found that on average, people spend nine months tinkering. 
The next stage is the, are the blade years, which is when the most important work is done. The blade years is when revenue is low and growth is also low. So they're just trying to figure things out. And then if the founders are really persistent and clever and smart, they hit the growth inflection point, which is when they begin to land enough customers and really happy customers such that revenue begins to come in much quicker. And that leads to the fourth stage, which is surging growth. And that's when things are really taking off and the founders experience hockey stick growth. And that's what I found from interviewing 172 successful startups. Why did you want to write this book? Well, you know, I wanted to write this book because I uh, started a company called First Research that is a subscription business that provides industry profiles to sales and marketing professionals. And through that experience of starting it in 1999 and then selling it in 2007, I went through all those stages of growth and just found that the process of starting a business and running a business is so much more I guess, haphazard and quixotic than many people realize. And I realize how much trial and error is involved and what the, how much scrappiness it really takes. Uh, I also found that each stage is completely different. So I just got really passionate about putting it on paper. And when I did that, I found myself enjoying it. And so because I enjoyed it so much, I stuck with it. And it took four or five years of research and and rewritings before we got it to exactly like we wanted it. So you mentioned you were an angel investor, and I'm curious what stage of, of these four stages of the hockey stick you find most interesting to come in at? Well, you know, each investor is different, um, different types of investors and different types of investments. But I enjoy investing in businesses when they're really very, very young uh, you know, near the idea stage, uh, right about the time they want to start the business. Uh, but one thing, sort of ironically, I guess, is that I encourage people to not take money until they absolutely need it. Uh, so when I get involved, sure, I make a, a cash investment, but really I just enjoy the journey with these six different businesses I'm an investor in. Uh, so I, I just enjoy being involved, helping out where I can. And also, I want to own enough of the company to be for it to be impactful and important. So at least, you know, 15% or more. So that requires getting involved quite early. So let's go back to the four stages. You mentioned when we were talking previously that you have a particular passion for the second stage, the blade stage, where you're kind of beyond tinkering, um, but you still haven't quite figured out your growth. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, uh, you're right. I'm quite passionate about the blade years. In fact, originally, a few years ago, I wanted to call my book The Blade Years because the blade years, again, is you quit your day job and you say, okay, I'm going to take this innovation or this new company and I'm going to get hockey stick growth eventually. That's a lot of people's goals. Well, what they what I've found about the blade years is it, it's, first of all, it ends up lasting longer than people think. And I was also going to maybe call the book longer than you think because people think that you know, you, you're going to start and then after about a year, six months to a year of persistent work, you're going to start seeing revenue really turning north. And it usually takes, on average, according to my research and studies, three years. Now, granted, it's all over the map, of course, but it, it just seems to to drag out. And that's because during this time, there's so many important things going on. Number one, the founder is very disappointed by their lack of income. So they've worked for a whole year 
And they, well, the first year they didn't expect to get a lot of income, but the second and third year, you know, and there's, if they have co-founders, they're splitting like fifty, seventy-five hundred thousand dollars worth of available cash to pay themselves, and so they can't quite get to even Raymond profitability, which is just scarce profitability. So that frustrates them, and many quit too early when they should really stick with it. But this is also the time during the blade years when founders are doing what you hear a lot called pivoting, and while pivoting has gotten to be quite popular. You know, I kind of see them tweaking more than they pivot. So I'm kind of more passionate about tweaks instead of pivots. But during this time, the most persistent founders are the ones making those changes during that three or four years to figure out how to turn their revenue forth. And many of these types of businesses that I studied, you know, are SaaS type businesses. And, uh, you know, that's what it takes. So what signals would you look for during these two, three years of the blade phase that would indicate it's worth sticking with it versus you're just optimistic and there's really not much there? Well, I think one of the most important things, uh, signs that founders see would be happy customers. And that early on, to my mind, that has to be the goal. It's, it's kind of akin to Jeffrey Moore's great book, Crossing the Chasm, where he says, you know, if you find early adopters and you focus your energy, ironically, or you, you wouldn't expect it to be on those early adopters and not necessarily trying to get more and more customers, then you've met, if you can make them really happy, then you can grow your business in the future. And so that's one of the signs I see is that founders have a few customers that are very happy or they spend a lot of time with those customers in order to make them very happy. And that's basically figuring out a formula, if you will. And it, you know, you think that process would take three or four or five months, but it ends up taking you know, two or three years oftentimes. We'll be back with more from Bobby Martin right after a quick word from our sponsor. Now back to our chat with Bobby Martin. Yeah, absolutely. So in looking at the, the hockey stick as a concept, it's something that we are kind of taught to strive for and want to strive for in the lens of a traditional startup, uh, especially if you've taken money. But what about from a small business perspective, if you know, you're growing up and to the right and things are compounding, but it doesn't really look like a hockey stick, is that a cause for concern? Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, that, that's actually an excellent question because I think hockey stick growth, you know, is of course relative in terms of the revenue, but you can have growth that goes in a straight line. And that would mean the first year you do 250000 in revenue. The second year you do 500000 in revenue. The third year, seven fifty. So you just keep adding $250,000 each year. And that would mean that you have a very consistent, uh, probably lifestyle business. And, you know, I, I actually encourage people to – uh, follow their dreams. And sometimes those dreams are indeed lifestyle businesses that aren't seeking that more exponential type growth, if you will. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And I just think that the, the challenge is rarely, if you have an innovative company that you're trying to really grow, rarely do you see growth occur with that straight line. Normally you have two or three years or more of very low growth and very low uh, 
basically numbers. You know, you don't have big numbers at the beginning. And so, you know, it's just how revenue curves tend to be shaped for the most part. But one thing's for sure, there are no truisms and everything's open. So that's what I'd say about that. Yeah, totally. And uh, I always like to come back to that because we talk a lot about these things in theory, but the truth is when you put them in practice, every business is different and requires kind of its own considerations of of how you want to steer the ship. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there can be companies with hockey stick growth that only have three or four million in revenue. So they do, mm-hmm. you know, 5000 the first year, 50000 the second year, 200000 the third year. And then eight hundred thousand the next year, and then you know, and then three million, and then four million, and then they they sort of don't become anything more than that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, that could be those are some of the best businesses to my mind because if they have good profit margins, and the, the founders are making really good salaries and have a niche and have a company with say thirty employees who are also very happy and they're treating them really well, they can't. It's like to me, maybe that's just the very best formula, right? Depending on what people's uh, personal aspirations are. Sure. So let's talk about the growth inflection point. What is typically happening there? Is it that you've figured out things better with your product? Is it more about figuring out your your growth channel where there's traction to bring people in the top of the funnel? Um, what do you typically see happening there? Well, I think it's all of those things, first of all. And for each business, um, what's emphasized the most of those things you mentioned could be more important than others. For example, one business I was talking about with you a few minutes ago is called ScheduleFly. It provides uh, basically software for the independent restaurants to schedule their employees online. It's very simple and very easy to use. But what they benefited from, because they focused so heavily on their product and made it so easy and useful, that word of mouth is when they hit their growth inflection point. So when people left, when employees left a particular independent restaurant and went to another restaurant, they would say, hey, we should get ScheduleFly because it's easy to use and it's a fantastic service. So ScheduleFly wasn't necessarily making more sales calls or doing more marketing or spending more money. They were just focused, focusing on making their product easier to use and therefore benefited from word of mouth. Whereas other companies, say my old company, First Research, we used to pretty much, because of the size of the subscription we sold, which was averaging $20,000 each one, then we made more and more cold calls. So we were not rude cold calls, not picking up, but actually well-researched cold calls. But that's what enabled us to really take off is that we found a formula and a methodology for sales and uh, we learned to repeat it and lean into it. And that's what gave us gave us growth. So it just depends company to company. But the smartest founders are very cognizant or aware of that. Yeah, it's always a challenge to balance uh, putting a lot of your effort towards the product and thinking that if you build something damn near close to perfect that people will find their way to it versus trying to just get out there and get as many uh, eyeballs and and people using it as possible. And uh, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle in my beliefs on that, but it's always hard to find that that right middle ground there. Yeah, you're right. And it's not so easy. It's just, just working hard on the product to your point, because sometimes like many founders, the mistake they make is they think the more features they add, 
that the more useful the product will become. And I see this over and over again. But really, sometimes features, even though you're adding features, it makes the product more clumsy and not so, you know, purchasable. And so people get confused by it. And so they can go backwards with that. So, you know, it's absolutely key to keep the product simple and not to over-engineer it. Yeah. So if you were going to distill this book down to one lesson, what would it be? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, one thing that really hits me is to to stick it out during the blade years. And if there was one, you know, takeaway is because if you, in, in my book, we go to quite a bit of detail about what the most successful founders were doing during the blade years to figure out that formula. And of course, that formula is basically a business model uh, and having the right product with the right business model. And so I think that's the biggest takeaway is that too many founders, uh, they either quit too early or completely pivot too early to my mind. And you know what I mean by completely pivot? So they make big changes when they don't need to make big changes. Maybe they just need to make tweaks. So that would be one major thing that's a big takeaway, I think. And you, there's dozens of stories in my book about that. And there's, there's actually one more, if you don't mind me adding it. Yeah. The other one is I think that way too many founders, in particular SaaS-type companies, they try to raise money uh, way, too, way too often when they don't really need to raise money. I mean, so many of these founders have great ideas and they feel like they have to rush their product to market and that money will help them do that because then they can build more features, hire more sales and marketing professionals or do more programs when really what they need is, is bootstrapping two or three founders who are willing to commit the time and effort to get to where they want to be, figure out how to live on less means. Because, you know, we see this over and over again. It's the most, it's the best companies who succeed, not the first to market. So people think you got to be first to market. Mm, you see, we, I see over and over again that that's not necessarily the case. And during those blade years, while they're not rate, the successful founders are not necessarily raising money, is when they're bec becoming a great company. That's the time yeah. period of some of the great companies. That makes sense? Yeah, and I think that's especially true as the barrier to entry for a lot of these industries and products gets lower. Um, it's just a lot easier for copycats to come on the market or um, even if it's not a direct copycat, you know, similar products come along and whether you're first or third or last, um, people are going to figure out pretty quickly who's for real and, and who's just trying to make a buck. Yeah, you're right. The, the perfect example of that in terms of industries is, is the um, the email software business. You know, it started mm -hmm. out there were literally hundreds of companies pouring into become to get into the email software business, and of course, only now you only really know about five or ten that I know about. You know, there's Eye Contact, there's Mailchimp, there's Constant Contact, and a few others, but when that industry first got started, there were literally hundreds, if not thousands of companies kind of getting into that. And whoever could execute the best, whoever the people, you know, did things quote unquote right, those were the survivors and that. And so I go into iContact's story in a fair amount of detail on what they, those young entrepreneurs did particularly well during their own blade years. 
So for anybody who'd like to read this book, and I highly recommend it, where can they find it and where can they keep up with you online? Oh, sure. Uh, so hockeystickprinciples.com is my website and that's where they can learn more about the book and get free content about the book. And I think chapter two is there for free and other information. And there's advice from the pros, which is where I went out and interviewed really smart people and provide those interviews for free. And so hockeystickprinciples.com. Great. Thanks so much for coming on, Bobby. Of course. Thank you, Joel. Well, a big thanks to Bobby Martin today for coming on. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for today's show, Chargebee. Go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship. You can get started setting up your subscription billing for free. Use the same service that companies like Soylent have used to scale their business. If you'd like to keep up with us, follow us on Twitter at RocketShipFM. You can follow Mike Belsito at Belsito, Joel at Joel Goldman, and myself at Michael Saka. If you haven't yet, please click subscribe. You don't want to miss the rest of this SaaS series. We have another fantastic episode, the fourth episode here in our SaaS series. If you are a new listener, we do full editorial episodes every Wednesday and every Sunday we do full-length interviews. So you don't want to miss those. So click subscribe, leave us a review, and we will see you back here very soon. Thank you.